opening the other questions. Oh. Yeah, it's how to answer them in a comprehensive but slightly logical way so it makes sense to yourselves listening. So they, most of them, and even the ones that have been added in this morning, centre around heart cultivation, as all the teaching has, but, but are directly asking questions about Brahma Vihar, Metta practice, equanimity, the whole sense of um, you know, Nibbana, Arahanship, Bodhicitta. So we're in this particular territory. In a way, how I um, consider it, we're in the we're in the territory of manifestation. How do we relate to this experience we're in? So it's just hard to know where to begin in all of this, but maybe I just start where I start and we see where it goes. So if we're if we're considering practice and contemplating what is it about and how do we how do we make sense of it in terms of our living, our lives, our relationships in the sense that here we are, that my experiences, the Brahma-viha, are a way of contemplating, a way of practice that gives us an orientation to check in about what we're actually doing. So the teaching is about being here with the way things are. So this is the Buddha knowing the Dharma. And the more we relax the grasping of the mind, the more fully available we become. So what we're meaning there is that the habitual tendencies of the mind, you know, by, with greed, hate and delusion, are to be in contention with reality and asking it to be other than it is. So we're, we're trying to get hold of it and change it in some way. Um, hold it still, not have it changing and permanent. We want to hold on, grasp hold of the things. We think we love, and we want to push away, which is another kind of grasping, the things we don't. And there's, uh, in a way, the same movement. There, movement away from presence, from uh, a willingness to just be here with the way things are. So it can, you know, the way the teaching's framed, it can feel like it's a, it's a negation and we have to really investigate to see if 
that's how it's happening because there will be elements of that in all of us. Okay? This is part of what we're trying to understand. So to use the teachings to reflect on that. Subtle, not wanting, subtle movements of the heart, or more gross ones. So, this, what is it like to be here with all the um, movements of the heart and not to be fighting with it? Have a sense of harmlessness with conditions. And you know, we can read it in text, we can talk about it, but sometimes it's just helpful to experience it in relation to other people. And I was, we've been sitting, talking quite a bit, and Tindria and Eliza and myself, you know, just, we've had lots of texts out, it's been you know, time to just be um, reflecting on practice together as well. So, and I guess for each of us, it brings back memories of things. So, as I was sitting and getting ready just to come over, I was thinking, well, what, what does the quality, what do the developed Brahma Viha feel like in an embodied way? And I was thinking of Rungpo Chao when he visited Chithurst. When Titus was first quiet, and he, if you talk to anyone that was there, he was so warm, and he was like round and jovial and laughing, and was just so warm, and he would hang out in the woodshed, <laughs> where many of us have hung out over the time, smoking. <laughs> Yeah. So, being with, <laughs> meet, meeting the folk where they were up to, because you know, often out in the woodshed smoking, later it was you know, slightly different, but still the same place, were people just who were kind of wrestling with the whole thing, you know, not quite settled into the the kind of machine or practice and, and you know, there he is out there laughing and yeah it doesn't look like it should does it <laughs> <laughs> but it has this you know, love and warmth in it you know, and then he, at that time uh, one of the folk who was staying was painting a picture of him, well not painting, it was actually some pastel. And there won't be any of you who haven't seen it in reproduction. Sits into his kind of entrance hall, this enormous, beautiful picture and pastels of Lumpur Charm. And you know, this man is working away with such devotion and dedication, <coughs> trying to get Expression on Lumpur Chao's face, just perfect. Mm -hmm. Just so obsessed with 
in a way, Lumputa challenges him. And it always felt like he recognized the heart this was coming out of. And he didn't he didn't say you shouldn't be doing it or you know, the process continued with Lumpucha's support, but he just got him to investigate the suffering of it. Mm-hmm. What it was like to so want it right, to want it perfect. Mm-hmm. And he challenged him around it. Mm-hmm. But you know, he didn't say, I felt it on some level. I don't want this huge picture of me hanging up in the hall, thank you very much. <laughs> received, received the, the love that it was about, but also wanted this person to be free. So this, we, can, we can think of people who are really, they're not, they're not holding on to anything, but they're not pushing anything away. They're willing to be there, you know, in whatever way. Another, another thing I've contemplated a lot is when I was first at, in Thailand, two things really, being with Lumpur Liam, who I don't charge us to take over what Nongpa promised monster. Lumpur Liam is the embodiment, if you ask me, of equanimity. No, just so supply, as they say in Thai, so laid back. <laughs> and, but he works like a Trojan. You know, he built miles and miles of concrete roads. He built the memorial stupa for Lumpur He just works like a Trojan. And, and you know, the, when I went over one time, he was he make, used to, in the afternoon tea time, make chamomile tea for everybody. So he's got all this work he's doing, he's got all this stuff going on, but he's still doing tea duty in the monastery. And uh, the story goes, and I don't know, but it made sense at the time, that he used to, the novices, the young, you know, that can be really tiny, the little novices were responsible for keeping the lawns mowed at Nongpapong, and what lawns they were. And one time, you know, they were coping, so Lumpur Liam did it. Now, you know, it's hard to know because in that he's actually breaking his, his training. You know, the, the monks have a rule that they, they're not allowed to do that. But I, you know, the, certainly when I was there, that was the story of what he would do. If, if they were overwhelmed and not coping. Cool. To be able to just respond, not to be bound in, <coughs> to, to be so kind. Mm-hmm. You're the head honcho, so to speak, but you're still 
you're still taking care there's heart qualities and of people who have you know, reputedly done all that is to be done but they're not they're not out of relationship with life they're not not caring there's this love in it it's, so we it can be helpful because we can read you know, we were reading but Ajahn Mahabur this morning <clears throat> and it's so fierce and it's so you know, cut the calaces you, you know you felt it, you know, I can't remember that it was a really strong but you just haven't understood it and just it's kind of the sense of a real shake up and um, you know we're talking about it in the sense of within Thai culture, it makes more sense because the culture has a whole sense of being laid back and more really community orientated and you know, that Buddhism's been there for a long time. So people can lose the edge of practice, but here that is not the case. So you know, we have to be really careful when we read this stuff because it was given as medicine to somebody else. And our, our conditioning is so radically different. So how do we pick up these teachings so they're medicinal, so they ripen in the heart's release? That's the inquiry really. So how does how does non-grasping fit in with this the metta sutta, the sense of the love a mother has for her child? Is there is there some conflict there? And I it's for each of us to investigate, isn't it? How do these things go together? And you know, when we when we feel inside, what's it like? What's this love the Buddha's referring to? What's it like? It's just quite divine. It's gone out of my head. Maybe that's well, not here, but just as a mother, the yeah. mother text, just as a mother. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> just as a mother protects with her life, her child. child. Her child. Imagine forgetting. It's so in the boundless heart. So in the boundless heart. That's right. So it's it's setting up this this quality. It's 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 reminding us of something. What's it like? Uh, a heart you know, that will do whatever is needed. And you know, the question here is: How you know? Is there a, a quality of annihilationism in this? You know, that we we aren't 
we're, we're in a way um, not we're rejecting something in that and it's part of the trickiness of, of these, any of these teachings because if we take them up as a view we, they, can, they can end up in polarities with these things if, if the mother protects with her life her child or only child what's happening with her own life? Is it a, a sense of non-cherishing there? And, and just to feel it and inquire. And the Metta Sutta, it's, it's very clear in the ways it's taught that it's nothing is left out from the heart imbued with this quality. So it's not, it doesn't leave ourselves out. It's not taking sides against anything, sides against anything. So it's, it's heart. And as I practice with it, it's this quality of being willing to be here with whatever is arising and with the quality of this cherishing. Not, not grasping, but because grasping can kind of crushes and hurts things. But with this soft, open quality. Mm. And, and I haven't had children, but I have family, young children, I have done a lot of looking after. And I, when I was um, I went to help with the birth of a couple of my nieces and nephews <coughs> months as part of that those events and one of it was back the first one wave of children was back when the continuum concept was really big. Yeah. Some of you know what that is. That's a, a kind of thinking. I guess it was anti Doctor Spock. I don't know if any of you were Spock children, but I certainly was. <laughs> and Dr. Spock was a theory of child raising where you put the child down and you only fed it at a certain time. <laughs> and you, you, know, you left it to settle itself down otherwise. That's yeah. coming back, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that was one polarity. And a continuum concept was on the other edge end of this. And that was, you never put the child down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so here am I, part of the care two, two children were born at that time. And one of my sisters was really sick. We, you know, we home birth the whole thing, and then she was really sick. And so I carried this child for a month. 
And what it did to my hormones. It was it was a revelation. crazy feeling, some of you will be familiar with. <laughs> yeah? And, and it was just powerful because the world was only the speak. Yeah? <coughs> you know, this. I mean, I was engaged, I was washing dishes, I was doing everything else, but there's this incredible sense of protecting. Yeah? It was powerfully hormonal. And it was it was such a strong feeling, whatever it took to keep this being okay. And it wasn't a rejection of myself, but just this powerful experience of metta. And we can, it's tricky stuff because it can feel like, well, were you looking after yourself in that? And we can get out of balance, but it, to recognize this quality that really can love something. It's not asking it to be anyway. It's just willing to be there, to, to attune to it. And this is how we, I will hope, how we cultivate all the time. Sitting, we sit attuning with this great heartfulness. We notice, as I was saying the other day, we notice any contracting of the heart. We're just aware of it. This, this sense of non-treasuring, non-caring. So, you know, my my way of practice is to. To recognise this, not as a, yeah, not as a negation of myself, but a, a such a quality of care that, you know, just with, you know, I had a really um, powerful experience this year. Yeah. Well, it's a whole series of experiences, actually, yeah. in terms of in my how to talk about in case because these things go anywhere talks but but um, once again in the field of my my next generation and one of them was seriously unwell and they only you know we had a little family conference we should do how we're going to manage all that's happening and the only safe thing seemed to be was to have this this family member stay where we were. We were no much of the time it was just me there. So um, did they want to be there? Mm. No. <laughs> were they easy? <laughs> Were they appreciative? <laughs> Was it painful? Yes. We all know this, don't we? 
Can we have this quality of actually love? You can do what you need to do. If that is to rage, it's fine by me. And my duty as mother is to make sure certain things are happening. So we we know that each of us knows that. So that's the quality we bring here all the time. Is it easy? No. Sometimes we had the most lovely fun. Was it often? No. Was it what needed to happen? Yes. Mm, yeah. It's quality we, we cultivate. Yeah. As what commonly happens for me now when I sit in um, retreat, or it happened you know, when we went to the sisters and we sat together in meditation, what can happen for me is that from you know, just a little period of time, start flowing through the mind all the hundreds of people I have been with dying. Mm-hmm. And that quality of being with people mm-hmm. in, their, in their dying, and are they all easy? No. Are they all people who people like. No. Some of them are, some of them were, supremely isolated for understandable reasons. But do we, do we be, in our work, many of us do, do we be with them, with all our love, and in my experience that you know, with people who were extremely contracted and isolated and you know, had no real experience of love at all, it could be profoundly transformative. There's there's me and there's a wonderful team of people bringing that quality and people come to mind who have never felt loved. You know, that's what they would say. And uh, the transformation happens. And we do that with people, we do that with conditions, we know that we're not loving them so they're different because it doesn't work like that but just because here they are manifest part of the great unfolding 
and with this you know, questions here all around equanimity too and what we practice with love and we practice with this understanding as I said before how could it be any different given the conditions how could this bitter, bitter man be any different when you hear the terrible things that happened and it it's helpful to to keep a really big view because you know, I really saw in the monastery where you're really up against people and I used to contemplate this and people did the most outrageously mean things mm-hmm. and I think oh. and you, when you're pressed up so much as you do when people are dying, you see that the kind of unskillfulness, it only comes from one place. It comes from Dukkha. So, so as we contemplate our own body-mind and we see the unskillful movements and we, we can come under them, we can be with them, we know what they come out of. And we know that other people, they do something that seems, feels, mean, unskillful, ignorant. And you know, this is dukkha, this is ignorance. If it could be different, it would be different. Mm. And this brings tremendous equanimity. This poor contorted soul. If it could be like this, if if no, it hadn't grown up with a brick on its head, crushing it down, it would take a very different shape. And in the kind of sad work I was doing, or therapeutic work, or wherever. You see people given conditions of this meta karuna, the transformations that happen. It's miraculous. What it's like with a child when it's crying, you pick it up and you meet it. So this is this is the quality with which we're meeting experience. It's it's so heartful, but it it hasn't got this feeling that might crush something. And I my sense is why the Buddha refers to a mother <laughs> is that and our mothers are all different. <laughs> But the basic orientation of the mother, and this can get really occluded, I know, but is for the child's well-being. And, and the pain for a mother when they can't do that, 
when their own <coughs> stuff prohibits it. But that is the basic movement. And so, the, with the child, mother child, it's, it's so simple. It hasn't got into a whole lot of complexity. Because, you know, as a child grows up, you know, that can shift and we can see mother starting needing the child to be like this or that or whatever. You can feel the, the kind of ignorance getting stronger in a way. But, but in this first movement, it can be so pure. You know, what it is when a child first opens its eyes and looks at you. Before all the stuff starts to arise. It's such a, a pure quality. It has all the wonder and mystery in it. Some of us have been fortunate to be the first thing that someone else has looked at. And that quality it evokes. So first we practice this is the this is the tenderness with which we're meeting conditions. The sense of wonder, mystery, gratitude. And then there's ignorance. And it's really helpful to recognize that this practice path is only about freeing the heart from ignorance, from the harmful aspects of this manifestation. We're not trying to rub Tanya out. <clears throat> there are moments where I wish I could. I have had moments <laughs> where if I could have stepped off the edge of existence, I would have. But that was annihilationism. That was coming from the dukkha. And was it possible? I looked and no. There is no edge you can step off and completely poof, disappear. We we are we are manifest. So meeting it, meeting it with these heart qualities. There are you know each of us have moments in our life where we've really being able to see this, feel it. When I'm sitting here talking like this, it reminds me of my pilgrimage in India in the hot season. And virtually no one else was around and about. And I met a traveller in a distant land. And, you know, it was hot. Nobody was there, we were in Kushnagar. 
They were dragging along this heavy bag filled with tombs of you know, Buddhist texts and a whole lot of stuff. A bag so heavily packed with texts in a language I couldn't read. But and so we we as you do when you're travelling, we joined forces to navigate all the systems and the chaos <laughs> because you know we were actually doing exactly the same thing. So at a certain point after this was after Buddha Gaya, here we are travelling down to holy places and that was towards the end of my time and this was really um, lovely, you know, India had been harsh in the extreme. Talk about karma rightening, so it was to have some someone who we could go about dharma and you know, you can imagine a kind of the fun of having someone as a companion to talk about practice with and so there we are travelling and I've made this promise to Ajahn Sumatra who I met in Thailand and, about getting to Amarati and so that is my what would they call it sticking the river the thing that is immovable. So at a certain point, I have to get myself on the way, on the way to Amarati, buying New Zealand and a whole fuss with visas and stuff, as it turned out, but this movement has to happen. And you know, we, we, you know, we, we, by then in Varanasi, and you know, we both knew we had a big talk, and that, you know, ways had to part because, you know, this was a, each had a different commitment, and I remember, on you know, I decided, well, I'll catch the bus early in the morning. And I can now have a, some of you know, I have a very different morning mind than my evening mind. And I thought, this has to be a morning thing. I couldn't do it in the evening. So I got up about, I don't know, three or two or whatever, before the day begins in India. And I got myself ready and went into where they were sleeping. And it's just really powerful feeling of, oh, if I could only stay here forever. You all know it. Yeah, just just stay here forever. And I noticed the breathing. (coughs) And it was just this sudden insight that movement was life. That, that, that equanimity, that love, movement is life. And 
So it wasn't a, oh, everything's impermanent. You know, it wasn't what I used to chant thousands, hundreds of thousands of times as a kid. You always lose what you love. <laughs> it wasn't coming from that place. It was from movement as life. And then leaving. And that, you know, it's with this quality. It wasn't that it didn't hurt. I remember being then out in the streets and there were a few cows, but it was was in here before it had woken up. And just feeling this primal, screaming feeling. And it was also in there was, oh, I'm about to leave my my land, my family, everything. So in that that moment, all of that was really there. But that other deeper sense of, yes, we, we go, we go with life. We go with our waking up. No, it doesn't mean we have to leave things. But for me at that time, I mean, that was just the next movement. But it wasn't a, it doesn't come from a harsh place or a, just that sense of, yes, I have this commitment I have said to Lumpur. I have, I have made this, um, yeah, this thing. Ooh, I have dedicated myself to something. And you just, yeah, so we stay, we stay within, within what's true, and we stay connected. feeling that moment of grasping where actually you just don't want it to change. Mm. But for that not to happen is fatal. Yeah. So practicing with these things. You know, each of you in your life has times, we have times really knowing these qualities. <coughs> and we we know when the mind is grasping. But the you know in that beautiful sutta we you know we're mindful. There's the ability of the mind to be collected, to be mindful, to know what's happening and to have the wisdom faculty present. And then the quality of yielding deliverance, essence of all things. Mm-hmm. And that's from being so fully present with them. Mm-hmm. And then as we cultivate this ability inwardly, outwardly, with thoughts, feelings, 
sounds, smells, cells, other people, whatever is arising, the heart becomes more loving. it up in a way that's true, nourishes us, doesn't bring us into conflict. You know this last verse in the Metta Sutta, by not holding two fixed views, that we haven't made it a view or a position, because they're always fatal. You know, they, they cut us off. You know, one of the questions about equanimity going to um, non-attachment, dis- t- no disconnection, the, and we just we just have to keep investigating you know, what what is happening here. Because these heart qualities, as they're classically taught, have near and far enemies. So the the metta, this quality of metta, is far enemy, there's hatred. I more see fear, which is the thing under hatred. And it was specifically taught as as a medicine for fear. And I've certainly used it extensively in that way myself. <coughs> when I have times in my life of being terrified, paralyzed, with fear, then meta is what the antidote. It's the, it's the thing that allays that. But the near enemy is sentimentality, attachment, you know, a kind of kind of clinging we we can feel for things where where we're not you know we started to try and control something else. We, we, rather than being directly with the experience, we have ideas about it and we're starting to manipulate it. Mm. It's turned into something that isn't free. And with equanimity, it counters this clinging and wanting, greed, hatred, the kind of movement of the mind, it has this stability to it. But the thing it can be confused with is a 
so disconnected experience. That's kind of the other word they use for it. Indifference. <coughs> yeah, indifference. <coughs> and that has a whole different feeling. So one is full and present, the other is retracted. Yeah? So you can tell whether you're with the, the real or the counterfeit by whether there is dukkha or not dukkha. Because the boundless qualities of heart are freed from dukkha. The counterfeit, the thing that can almost look like it or feel like it, not feel like it, but has many of the qualities of it, but isn't hasn't got the wisdom and the, and the understanding of viewing it, these hit. Yeah, so we just test it out. And we, how do, you know, my question to myself is, how do we keep our heart open when there's so much chaos and misery. We, how do we not disconnect? So it's an inquiry, isn't it? When I was you know, back, back, back at that time, you know, before I came really in much contact with the formal teachings, I'd abandon newspapers and televisions, all of it, because I thought, you know, there's this, this stuff happening all over. And, you know, how do I see what's happening in these places and do nothing about it? If I'm not doing something about it, am I just deadening my heart? Sitting here, I'm seeing. Fiji, flooded, peaceful, homeless, and we're sitting there. So that we can have this, this thing, well, there is so much. I mean, you, you only have to turn on the news, as you know, and, and it's flooded with misery. So, what do you do? How do you relate? How do you not disconnect? How do you feel it without feeling overwhelmed? And my, my sense for myself now is to recognize the conditionality. Also to allay, you know, to be able to be present, understand how this is all arising. Because if we can do that and come into a place of stability, non-aversion, non-disconnection, then right response happens. We respond where we can within our own sphere. We do what we can. Now, for some people, they can do very um, 
in terms of social action, social justice, they can do a lot. Other people have different circumstances. But we can bring kindness and compassion into every person we engage with. You know, we can we can take in a sense action. We can we can bring this quality everywhere that comes that touches us. And this capacity we have supports us not to come into disconnection. We live our life from this place of loving kindness. We live our life from a sense of blessing. And that that orientation of the heart can mean we can be with it, be with what is happening. So you can can feel the tendency of the mind can be just to kind of grasp inwardly, kind of self-selfishness, that kind of thing. And then the other movement, there's a kind of relaxing of that, and it's almost like the heart, in my experience, turns outward. It's not trying to get anything for itself anymore. We have times when we really feel it, where we've come out of the kind of grasping and controlling, and we're willing to be available. You may notice it's a word I use a lot, that sense of available, availability. So it's not disconnected. Kind of hopefully touching on some of these questions. Because this just kind of moves into the question about the Bodhisattva and Arahant. (coughs) Would you speak about the Bodhisattva, the one who postpones his or her enlightenment for the sake of all? How does this relate to the Arahant, or does it? I see I'm taking more time than usual, so I'll just say a little here, and we, maybe we come back to this. Um, the, we, were, we were talking about this this morning, briefly, and, and I guess both of us, Josh and I, were saying in a sense that you know, it's a tricky question to answer because it's coming from two different you know, paradigms of practice. Mm. And what I can speak to is the you know, from within the Theravadan mm. understanding. Now the the Mahayana understanding it's different and they will have a different inflection, I'm sure. But as a as a practice, you know, practitioner within this lineage, how I work with it is 
search their bodhisattva undertaking allows me to feel any unwillingness, any selfishness, any, any, yeah, indifference, anything that means I'm not fully available. And so it counters this other aspect of the kind of annihilationist trying to get away that some of us have a tendency toward because this says actually will be here till every blade of grass is liberated and if your tendency is to run and hide it's a very good medicine (coughs) I'm willing to be here and and then from my experience that when the mind comes out of greed, hatred and delusion, even for a moment, every blade of grass is liberated. Yeah. It comes out of the duality. So the it can be a really skillful means for seeing our not wanting. And you know the those who are less informed within the Mahayana tradition can talk about selfish arahants. Yeah, the lesser vehicle. And I think it's a misapprehension. No, I wouldn't think I know it is a misapprehension. (laughs) (laughs) The release of the heart from greed, hatred and delusion has no selfing in it. There is... No, no such thing as a selfish arahant. <coughs> it's a tautology. Because the very thing that the arahant is released out of is self and selfishness. So, yeah. So how do we pick this up and let it deepen and open our practice so that the quality of heart, bodhicitta, is boundless. We're willing to be here till the end of time. This quality in our practice. And so it can be a helpful counterbalance to some of the messaging we can get out of our sitting out of the high forest tradition. It's like an antidote to this other medicine, which can be quite harsh and make us a little crook. 
we went to Matvata Mahabhuva from this karmic position. If I misapprehend it, it does something that's not particularly helpful. And then to have this other medicine, it just expands it out. I don't know if that's helpful, but... The Tibetans will speak to it differently, of course, but it isolates as part of this Brahma practice. And the, the boundlessness that you know, these metta, karunamal dita, these practices, I had a reading here that we didn't got to really, about the, the quality of mind. They're usually associated with states of <coughs> samadhi, tremendous boundlessness. And the Buddha talks about them as doorways to the deathless, which isn't, you know, it's a different orientation than the Bodhisattva vow. And the way, the, the way that one releases even those is by understanding self and, and conditionality. In the Majjhima, I think it's Sutta 10, that really looks at this. Mm. It's, it's helpful to contemplate these things mm. and, and to check in you know, just what is actually happening here. They, they, they can remedy a wrong view. <clears throat> and they can be very skillful. And then if we take a position on them, they are dangerous, like anything. So, how to pick up all this teaching, all these skillful means without you. Mm. And we know it's you and it leads to suffering. Mm. So it's <coughs> the whole thing on the end is so simple. It's always back to this place of dukkha and the end of dukkha. Does it lead to the understanding, the yielding of deliverance, this essence? Or is it pointing some other place? So I've skirted around some questions. You know, maybe this evening I can address them more detail if need be, but I think it's probably enough for this morning.